Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll discuss pirates in Florida, both real and imagined. What people know in our society is basically partly true, and then a lot of it's been fabricated by Hollywood and books and plays. And walking the plank is something that has never been documented in the historical record. We'll visit the Florida Pavilion at the 1933-34 World's Fair. The goal of this exposition was to celebrate 100 years of uh, Chicago history, but also look at world innovations in new technology, uh, new construction methods. And the state of Florida wanted to uh, promote tourism, but also promote uh, northerners to move down to the state. And we'll discuss the Eatonville paintings of Andre Smith. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Pirates have been romanticized in popular culture for more than a century, from the Robert Louis Stevenson book Treasure Island, the Gilbert and Sullivan operetta Pirates of Penzance, and the fairy tale Peter Pan, to dozens of films, most recently the Pirates of the Caribbean series. Zach Zacharias is Senior Curator of Education and Curator of History at the Museum of Arts and Sciences in Daytona Beach. He says that most of what we think we know about pirates from these popular sources and others is false. Take the idea of walking the plank, for example. Not true at all. And what people know in our society is basically ba partly true, and then a lot of it's been fabricated by Hollywood and books and plays. And walking the plank is something that has never been documented in the historical record. And the fact that they would stop the ship throw out a ceremonial piece of plank and have a ceremony and have somebody jump off the ship is not really going to happen. They, if they want to get rid of it, they just threw you off the ship. Almost every pirate story features a map with an X marking the spot where buried treasure is located. Zach Zacharias says no way. X marks the spot. Uh, definitely is one of those myths. They, uh, there's no treasure map that's ever really been found. And... Uh, Believe it or not, they wouldn't bury their money because it's not useful for them to bury the money. They wanted to spend their money. They spent a lot of their money when they went to the port, and burying it doesn't do you any good. When it, and you probably would never even find it again on a small island. So that makes the idea of buried treasure also a myth. 
As if that wasn't enough, Zacharias says that the stereotypical pirate with a peg leg, hook hand, and eye patch is also not likely. Uh, not likely at all. As a matter of fact, if you ha- if you had a peg leg and you could survive that type of a wound back in 1688, uh, there's no way you'd be able to climb the rigging. You wouldn't be able to keep your balance on a ship. So what they would probably do is put you on a port town, give you a little bit of extra share, and say bye-bye to you. That's not to say that maybe somewhere on a ship there was somebody that was missing an arm or had an eye poked out and survived that. But for the most part, uh, that was pretty much, that was not the norm at all. This is not really true. Many fictional pirates have talking birds on their shoulders. What about that? Talking birds are very entertaining, and I can see why Hollywood would love that. But uh, they did have birds. So some pirates would capture exotic birds, but they sold them at, at next port town or markets, and they didn't train them to sit on their shoulder and say goofy things. <laughs> so no walking the plank, no buried treasure or maps with an X marking the spot, probably no peg legs, hook hands, or eye patches. Certainly all that singing and drinking must be real. Again, you definitely see that in the pirate movies and the stories where everybody's singing and happy uh, and swinging from ropes and drinking. Uh, But it was actually, they had to sail the ship, so they couldn't be drunk or drinking all the time. And it was boring. They could go weeks and weeks without even seeing a ship. And so it could be a very boring life. So they didn't do that. Before you get totally disillusioned over our popular ideas about pirates, Zach Zacharias says they did have scary flags with skulls and crossbones. They did have uh, the Jolly Roger, and uh, they did have the pirate flags, and those were used to intimidate. And what they really wanted to do was to get you to give up and scare you into giving up because the pirates, again, another myth that they wanted to fight all the time, not true. They didn't want to fight because one slight cut from a cutlass sword could get infected and you could die out at sea and they didn't have antibiotics or any type of of medicine for that. So if they could give you to give up and take your stuff, uh, that's what they wanted. They didn't want to fight unless they had to. But if they did fight, it was hand-to-hand. Pirates have raided Florida's coast since the first Europeans settled here in 1565. To discuss pirates in Florida, we must use the correct terminology. For example, some pirates had permission to raid and pillage Florida towns. They were privateers. Basically, a privateer is somebody that's hired by a government, like the English government, and they're given uh, a letter of marquee or a writ saying that they have authorization by the government to attack enemy shipping, uh, and that's usually in time of war. Usually the Spanish and the English were doing that. But the Spanish were fair game for everybody because they were bringing a lot of wealth out of the New World, out of Veracruz and other parts of of the New World. And they were becoming very wealthy. So they were fair game for everybody from the Dutch to the French to the English. And they were being attacked. So it didn't matter if you had a a letter of marquee or a document that said you were an authorized pirate. Uh, They saw everybody as pirates. So privateers were basically legally sanctioned pirates, but their situation could quickly change depending on politics. Exactly. You could get caught because information traveled very slow back then. And uh, Captain Kidd was one of those pirates that got stuck where the political winds changed and he was no longer a privateer. He was a pirate. The football team in Tampa Bay is the Buccaneers, and they have as their symbol a pirate with a feather in his cap and a dagger in his mouth. Zach Zacharias says the Buccaneers were a specific group of pirates. Buccaneers refers to a group of pirates that evolved around Tortuga and Hispaniola and uh, the native uh, uh, 
Americans that lived on the on the Hispaniola, they used to take these strips of meat and put them on a rack and dry it out and smoke it. It's basically like beef jerky. And so these Frenchmen who were on the island of Hispaniola would copy this and they would take it out to passing ships and they would sell this jerky to the passing ships. Well, eventually they just started raiding the ships and taking the ships and stealing things and they became known as buccaneers. And that's where the, the term buccaneer comes from the, the, uh, the native word bucan or bucaning. It can be argued that the discovery of French pirates in Florida helped lead to the establishment of the first Spanish settlement at St. Augustine in 1565. It's really interesting, and I, I never really see a lot written about this, but it, when we had the French Huguenots come in Jacksonville in 1565 and try to make a, a, a settlement, not a colony, they were here for good, uh, and they were escaping religious uh, persecution, they went six miles up the St. John's, and they put their settlement up on a bluff. Well, many of them had gotten gold fever and were search, scouring the countryside for gold instead of preparing themselves, preparing their settlement, and they fell into starvation. And some of the soldiers uh, who were with the, the French settlement were disillusioned, stole some of the ships, went turned to piracy, were caught by Spanish squadron, and that alerted the Spanish that the French were in La Florida or in the, had been on their, is on their, on their land. Zach Zacharias says that people are often surprised to discover that pirates in Florida and elsewhere operated under a democratic system. Really amazing. Before there was democracy in North America and in the colonies, there was democracy on these rough and rugged mean, nasty men that we know as pirates. They, they had a form of primitive democracy where they would have a simple vote, where they would vote on their captain. They could vote their captain out. They voted on where to go. Uh, they could vote on new people who came into the pirate crew. So they had a crude form of democracy where people got to participate. And these pirates, what they were longing for was freedom, from freedom for the rigors of a society that, that they didn't fit into. Many pirate ships had cannons to attack coastal towns from the water, but the primary weapon of pirates was a short sword called a cutlass. A cannon would take nine men to operate effectively one cannon, but when they came side by side to ships and there was, there was combat, they had a sword that was short, sturdy, and curved called a cutlass, and that was their main weapon. They could cut ropes, they could hack an arm off, they could disable you, they could knock down big, heavy oak doors, and that was their main weapon. The flintlock pistols, were they could get damp, they were cumbersome, they were hard to fire, they weren't that accurate, and so the cutlass was the weapon of choice for pirates. The most notorious pirate to attack Florida was Sir Francis Drake. Since the British government endorsed Drake's raids, at least some of the time, he was also a privateer. Sir Francis Drake, uh, who was, if you were a person uh, in the uh, Spanish realm here in 1586, uh, uh, he was known as the worst pirate that ever lived. He was a sea dog, a sea devil, a sea dragon. But to the British, uh, he was a hero. He, he was knighted. And, but he came up the coast, and he saw a wooden watchtower out on Anastasia Island, the uh, very island of, off of St. Augustine, saw a Spanish wooden tower, and he ended up attacking St. Augustine in 1586, and he sacked the entire town, burned the town, burned the fort, took the pay to the fort. He cut down orange trees, uh, pulled up everybody's uh, vegetable gardens, stole everything he could. And... Uh, he was a notorious pirate, that he, and he preyed on the Spanish in particular, and he was considered a privateer. Robert Searle's sack of St. Augustine in 1668 is annually reenacted there. 
Searle used a kind of Trojan horse ruse to attack the town. Robert Searle attacked St. Augustine. He came up the coast, and he had a really ingenious plan, and he he had captured... Uh, a supply, a Spanish supply ship that was coming in from Veracruz that was to relieve, to bring supplies to St. Augustine. He captured, uh, the ship and he had the crew go about their everyday duties while his crew was down below decks. So when the ship approached St. Augustine, uh, they had approached the ship and they realized it was a friendly Spanish ship. Everything seemed normal, but midnight, uh, they came out, uh, the pirates, the English pirates came out and stormed the city and killed a quarter of the population of St. Augustine at that time, which was pretty amazing. Zach Zacharias says that the last pirate to attack St. Augustine was Nicolas Grimaud. He was French, and he attacked St. Augustine, and he tried to starve the city to death and had a 16-day siege and blockade of the city. And unfortunately for him, he was not successful uh, a Spanish sloop had slipped the blockade and gone to Havana for help and reinforcements, and he figured this out, and after 16 days, he gave up. But he represents the last attack on St. Augustine, on the city of St. Augustine, by pirates. Now, there were other attacks, but they weren't by pirates, and there was siege warfare that went there uh, on, on different occasions, but they weren't pirates. Just as there were people of African descent on every Spanish ship to come to Florida in the 1500s, there were black pirates who terrorized Florida's coast. Francisco Menendez was one of them. Francisco uh, Menendez was a, a, a black pirate. He was Spanish, and uh, he was at uh, an interesting fort, which was north of St. Augustine, called Fort Mose, which was a buffer fort to protect the Spanish town of St. Augustine from uh, what they knew would be at some point a British attack from the colonies. And he uh, had butchered some English soldiers, and then he took to the sea for the Spanish as a privateer, a Spanish privateer, and attacked uh, English shipping. And eventually, uh, he was a freed slave in the Spanish realm in St. Augustine. And uh, he eventually was caught by the English and then sold back into slavery. And he was tortured. I think he was hit 200 times with a cat of nine tails. Uh, but then eventually, he ended up his way back up at Fort Mose. And then when the British took over Florida for 20 years, he eventually was taken with the Spanish down to Havana and lived his life out there. Pirates were active along Florida's east coast, in the Keys, and along the Gulf Coast for centuries. Zach Zacharias says his favorite Florida pirate is Henry Jennings. This is a pirate who came out of Jamaica. He was an English pirate. And in 1715, the big Spanish treasure fleet was sailing in August of 1715, right up the coast, right off of Brevard County. Uh, and they hit, a, they hit a hurricane, and they... All 15 or 18 ships were scattered up and down the coast. And the Spanish set about uh, a salvage operation. Well, this pirate, Henry Jennings, attacked the uh, salvage operation and stole and looted 300,000 pieces of eight for himself. And he actually retired a very wealthy pirate off of this. Zach Zacharias is Senior Curator of Education and Curator of History at the Museum of Arts and Sciences in Daytona Beach. He spoke with us about Florida pirates, both real and imagined. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. 
Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about exciting events like our annual meeting and symposium, shop for great books on Florida history and culture, utilize our classroom resources, and much more. To receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, The Society Report, just click on the Join Now button. That's myfloridahistory.org. For daily updates on Florida history, join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Brothers Robert B. Sherman and Richard M. Sherman wrote the song It's a Small World to accompany Walt Disney's Children of the World exhibition at the 1964 World's Fair in New York. That display lives on at the Magic Kingdom in Orlando. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society, and he says that 30 years earlier, at the World's Fair in Chicago, Florida was well represented. Yeah, that's right. The uh, state government of Florida decided to fund a pavilion at the 1933-34 Chicago World's Fair, which was formerly known as the Century of Progress International Exposition. And the goal of this exposition was to celebrate 100 years of uh, Chicago history but also look at world innovations and new technology, uh, new construction methods. And the state of Florida wanted to uh, promote tourism, but also promote uh, northerners to move down to the state. Um, So as a result, they designed this elaborate uh, Florida pavilion to highlight um, some of the more interesting aspects of of life, uh, climate, and new technologies in Florida. Now, in the Library of Florida History Archive, there's a a collection of photographs of the Florida Pavilion at the World's Fair. Yeah, that's right. We've got this great photo album of about 36 original black and white, uh, large format, 8 by 10 photographs um, that depict this Florida Pavilion. And many of the photographs show large crowds walking through the elaborate gardens. And the gardens displayed, of course, indigenous plants or a lot of palm trees, um, native Florida wildflowers, um, but also these statues of... um, uh, of different Florida figures inside the pavilion, we have some photographs of a, a panoramic view of of uh, these really beautifully done uh, paintings of different Florida history scenes. We have conquistadors, uh, looks like meeting with with Native Americans, and they're very large uh, uh, large pictures. We're not sure who the artist was, um, but it looked like it was really quite a quite an operation. It took quite a bit of time to uh, to develop and plan this exposition, and then ship everything up to Chicago. Um, but uh, in most of the photographs, we see uh, we see a large crowd. There are also some uh, tour uh, guides who are guiding people through through the gardens and through the uh, uh, the expo uh, um, pavilion center. As as part of the Florida presence at the World's Fair, there was a actually a new building that was constructed adjacent to the pavilion. That's right. And looking at it now, it doesn't look like much. It sort of looks like an old uh, an old house. But it was actually uh, what was called the. Um, the Florida Tropical House, and it was designed by a now famous Florida Miami architect by the name of Robert Law Weed, who was famous in what we call the modernist style of architecture. And he designed this Florida Tropical House 
uh, again, to highlight some of the new and emerging uh, construction methods that were being used in uh, newer home constructions for this, this modernist style in South Florida. Uh, and what he tried to do was integrate uh, not only new construction methods that were uh, designed for uh, specifically for Florida homes, but also integrate um, a lot of material that would have been uh, developed and manufactured in Florida, including Florida travertine, uh, clay that was found in Florida for the roof. Uh, he also found... Uh, uh, limestone that, of course, is, is natural to Florida, and some aggregate materials to uh, develop this new material called Portland cement, which is now uh, very common and, and used throughout most homes uh, in Florida. But the idea was to create this large kind of open floor plan, lots of windows, because we have to remember this is, uh, again, before the advent of, of air conditioning. Um, so they had to keep that in mind when designing these homes. And they built this entire structure uh, up in, in Chicago. What's fascinating about this particular structure is that in 1930, Five, uh, when the World's Fair was being dismantled, they were taking all of these uh, all these pavilions down. A, uh, a developer decided to buy some of the uh, some of these interesting new uh, these new homes, including the Florida Tropical House. So the entire house was disassembled and then moved to uh, what's now called the Homes of Tomorrow. Uh, uh, exhibit, which is it's it's now actually protected as a as a historic site in Beverly Shores, Indiana, on the shores of Lake Michigan. So the Florida House still exists today. It's currently being renovated. So if you're ever driving through uh, through Beverly Shores, Indiana, you can visit uh, visit this Florida tropical house. Well, great. Well, I understand that July 20th was Florida Day at the Chicago World's Fair in 1933. That's right. And as I said earlier, the whole idea of this project was to try and attract uh, visitors to Florida and to promote Florida. It was really a, a, a great way to booster tourism in Florida. So the governor at the time, Dave Schultz, uh, traveled to the exhibit. Uh, he actually visited a few times, but he decided to come in, in July of, uh, of 1933. And the fair then decided to designate the uh, uh, designate July 20th as Florida Day. Um, and, and many people probably don't remember it now. We don't really celebrate it now, but I think we should bring it back. We'll make July 20th uh, Florida Day. All right. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society. This is Florida Frontiers. Andre Smith is most closely associated with the artist's compound he built in Maitland, but as Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com explains, Smith also has work displayed in Eatonville. He's probably best known for his paintings of Eatonville, his sort of progressive stance on race relations, as well as being extremely unbiased in matters of gender and nationality, but probably best known for the Eatonville paintings. They are most likely the only surviving images of the uh, Depression-era city of Eatonville. That was Bethany Gray, assistant curator at the Maitland Art Center. She was telling me about the artist Andre Smith. Smith moved to Maitland in the 1930s to start an artist colony known as the Maitland Research Studio. 
While there, he took an active part in the local community and became interested in neighboring Eatonville. He produced many works based on Eatonville, which is most famous as the hometown of the Harlem Renaissance writer, Zora Neale Hurston. Smith's most famous Eatonville work hangs in the St. Lawrence African Methodist Episcopal Church. These eight paintings depict the biblical story of Jesus and the crucifixion, commonly known as the Stations of the Cross. But with the images represented are those of African-American figures. Here Miss Gray tells me what Smith was trying to capture in these Eatonville works. With the Eatonville art, I think that he was really just uh, appreciative of the community. I think he was fascinated with it. I think that he was doing what he could to sort of level the playing ground for the two communities because they were um, so starkly contrasted as far as have and have nots. Um, but he found the Eatonville community to be so rich um, obviously not monetarily, but culturally rich. And I think that he wanted to immortalize that, perhaps. I spoke with Jerry Bell at a local coffee shop to learn more about these works. He's a member of the Friends of Maitland Art Center. Here he tells me where the inspiration for the paintings came from. He had a great friendship with Zora Neale Hurston. When you look at the paintings, you can see that some of the paintings, which uh, are either of Jesus or uh, angels, portray uh, people of dark skin, some are of light skin, so I think he thought of them as a, uh, as a one people kind of thing, and, and uh, his progressive thoughts just prevailed in those paintings. If you've never seen these paintings, they are remarkable. They represent an interesting comment on the part of Andre Smith, who was a progressive northern artist working in Central Florida, and was troubled by racism and the progress of race relation in the South has he witnessed it. Although these paintings are eight separate works, collectively they tell a broader story. Here Jerry Bell speculates as to that broader story. There is a narrative and, and there is a narrative at the bottom of each one of the paintings which basically reflects a passage uh, out of the Bible. Uh, as far as I know they're all from the New Testament so they basically is like you know, the Lord he comfort me and the picture basically projects that, the Lord comforting a citizen, you know, one of the one of the people, you know, the downtrodden and the oppressed. Which, of course, you know, if you read the history of, of Jesus, Jesus was an advocate for the poor, so uh, Andre Smith, in his in his little role that he saw it as an artist, uh, wanted to project that advocacy for the poor, and I, I think he came across very well in, in how he did that. The restoration process will be difficult. I asked Jerry Bell, tell me what has to be done to each painting. It took a long time to get them flattened and to get the backs reinforced so that they wouldn't bow again. Unfortunately, they were made out of pressed paper, which is even less stable than what masonite is. So being, uh, these paintings were done in 1937, so you can see in a non-air-conditioned uh, condition, that uh, they have really deteriorated and the paper has actually started to come apart. So they had to, what they had to do was put glue in between the sheets of the paper and to get them back reinforced. And then there's a reinforcing material that's going to be put on the back of them so that, that, that they won't do this again. We know little of Andre Smith compared to his contemporaries in the art world. Paintings like the ones which hang in the St. Lawrence Church are not only a contribution to the arts heritage of Florida, but also represent a commentary and conversation on race between Smith 
and the community in Central Florida. This restoration is an effort to preserve that voice as much as it is to preserve the art. To learn more about the restoration efforts, find the Friends of the Mayland Arts Center online. That was Bethany Gray and Jerry Bell, and I am Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, where you can get our daily posts today in Florida history. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers is provided by Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.